It's interesting how the gospel writers choose to arrange their content. The story that we heard this morning is presented in Luke's gospel right on the heels of Jesus coming out of what's known as the wilderness temptations. Is everybody familiar with that particular episode with Jesus? He goes to the wilderness for 40 days. And after, not during, after 40 days of not eating, of fasting, the devil comes to him and tempts him three times. Jesus, of course, successfully resists and overcomes the devil's temptations. Interestingly, both of them are using the Bible in this exchange. And so much of it is centered on Jesus' identity. Well, we know from Matthew's gospel as well that Jesus' identity has been established when and where at his baptism in the Jordan River, where the Father echoes out this beautiful and profound statement, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove upon the Son. And then that same Holy Spirit, it says, drives Jesus into the wilderness. If you're looking for a fresh touch of the Holy Ghost this morning, be careful. He might have plans for you. But what's beautiful about Jesus' story, among several things, is the fact that when the devil, when the devil, huh, when the Holy Spirit, a little bit of a difference there, friends, just want to clarify, when the Holy Spirit drives Jesus into the wilderness, notice this, it says that Jesus comes out of the wilderness in the power of the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Luke tells us that he begins to preach in the synagogues, in the surrounding area, having returned in the power of the Spirit. And in verse 16, where our text, uh, just preceding our text this morning, it says, and then he came to Nazareth. Then he comes to Nazareth. So I, I want us to understand, Mark places this story in a very different place later on in the ministry of Jesus. And the question is, why would Luke put this story here? If, as many scholars have come to think, that Mark is the first gospel possibly written before any of the other New Testament books were written, most recent scholarship would, would maybe even lean us into saying that sometime in the mid-40s to late-40s, Mark writes this gospel. And that the, certainly the other synoptic gospels, Matthew and Luke, would have in some way or could have in some way resourced Mark's material. Well, why would Luke make this move? Why would he strategically put this story of dealing with Nazareth right on the heels of Jesus dealing with the devil? And I'm thinking maybe Luke knew that the devil is just as prone to show up in your hometown with a familiar name as he is to show up with a pitchfork in the desert. Maybe Luke understood, and maybe Luke's audience, both ancient and today, maybe we need to understand that our wrestling, our striving, it's not against flesh and blood. Jesus isn't fighting here in Nazareth. His battle is not with Nazareth. I would even draw your attention to the fact that this is act two of the wilderness. Notice something. The people in Nazareth tried to do to Jesus what the devil tried to get Jesus to do, throw himself over a cliff. 
So whether we think of the devil as some menacing personal presence, which I believe there's truth to that, or we recognize that the devil shows up sometimes in our hometown, or in this case, our home church. Thankfully, no amens at that point. Would have been awkward. Notice that whether it's the wilderness or the synagogue, the question of Jesus' identity is at the core of the problem. From his baptism to the wilderness to the synagogue at Nazareth, the issue of Jesus' identity has been front and center the entire time in Luke's gospel. Notice that the Father announces it The devil questions it, if you are the son of God. And the people in the neighborhood are scandalized by it. The NRSV says, they're filled with rage. Another translation says, they're filled with wrath. Two questions come to mind when I sit with this text. Two questions. One. Why were the people filled with rage? Why were they so upset? And then the second question, is there any chance that I might be like them in some way? Before I get to the first question, I just want to talk about the second question for a minute. And that is, I think some of us have been taught to read the Bible, depending on our tradition, we've been taught to read the Bible and read stories in the Bible in ways that cast us in the greatest light. Did anybody grow up in that sort of environment? So in other words, we never sit back and think that we might be outraged by Jesus. We, somehow in that story, we become an objective third party looking in, sort of like the two men in the Muppets, just watching, looking down on these stupid people from Nazareth that don't recognize Jesus' Christological implications. When I read the Bible, I was trained to read the Bible. I'm Abel, I'm not Cain. I'm Abraham, I'm not Lot. I'm Joseph, I'm not his brothers. Come on, somebody, talk to me. How about this one? I'm David. I'm not a cowering Israelite soldier. Hello. Do I got to keep going? I'm Gideon. I'm not the dude that was like, okay, I'll go home. That's how I've been taught to read the Bible. And so I'm not trying to be a downer here. I'm just trying to say, maybe we should read it differently. Maybe it helps us to read the text in ways that cast us in a light of needing the most. Maybe it's helpful to just play the villain for a minute. I think there are at least three benefits to reading the Bible this way. I think there are at least three benefits to not seeing ourselves as the hero, as the protagonist. I think there are three things we get out of being willing to be the antagonist. Number one, it cultivates humility. It says, I'm not above this. Notice the, sem- the sibilance, that's what I meant to say, the resonance. Notice the echo between what Jesus says in Nazareth and what 
the religious leaders say at Calvary. Physician, heal thyself. And what do they say? If you're the son of God, come down. You've saved others. And what do they say to him? Save yourself. Do you hear the echo? Do you hear their singing in the same key? And what is the song that we sang say this morning? It was my voice that was mocking you at the cross. There's something about jumping into the antagonist that says, this is not beneath me. If I'm in Nazareth, there's a chance and maybe it's a good chance that I'm saying those things in my heart, that I'm outraged. And I think this is the second benefit of jumping and reading the text this way is not just humility, but honesty. So much of what we do in church is about masks and facades and camouflage that present us as the kind of people that would never do anything like that. And I think the scary thing is, is not the mask. I think the scariest thing about religion is not the mask, but that we come to the point that we look in the mirror and we actually think the mask is our face. That's what scares me about religion. It's not just that I'm going to live a pretend life, but that I'll confuse the pretend life I've created with reality. And I think when I read the text and I'm the antagonist and I'm the outraged person in Nazareth and I'm the Israelite who doesn't really come in the name of the Lord, I'm hiding behind a tree in fear. And I'm really Joseph's brother who's threatened by the good things God's promised Joseph. So I try to get rid of him and get him out of my life. It's called, you know, taking control of my relationships. Um, This makes me a little bit more honest about who I am. Friends, I think the fact is we're complicated. Am I right? I mean, we're complicated. Martin Luther's, one of his great mottos of the Reformation in Latin is simul iustus et peccator, at the same time justified and a sinner. That's my testimony. That's my story. And the moment I forget one half at the expense of the other, I'm not really being honest. Maybe I'd invite us to read Romans 7 over the course of the afternoon. The things I want to do, man, I don't seem to be able to do them. The things I don't want to eat, I mean, the things I don't want to do. I just keep doing them. Yes. We're complicated. And I think jumping into, I mean, some people are like, well, I'm in Christ. Yes. But there's stuff in you. That's what I'm talking about. Thirdly, I think when I'm willing to be the antagonist, I think it creates a little solidarity. I think it acknowledges the fact. G.K. Chesterton said this one time. He said, the doctrine of original sin is the great equalizer of humanity. 
I think when I read the story and I'm willing to be the outraged Nazareth citizen, I suddenly jump into the plight that most of humanity is in. When I see myself as one of Joseph's grumpy brothers, I'm really joining the majority of humanity as as opposed to insisting on some sort of fictional exceptionalism. So am I this angry person? And if I am, why? Am I angry? That's the question. Why are they so outraged? I think they're outraged over one when and two who's. One when and two who's. Our first verse from the gospel reading says, he began to say to them, this is Jesus' opening word today. They're scandalized because he said, today. This prophecy from Isaiah, this messianic reference, this foretelling oracle of Jehovah that points to an age in which the Messiah will rise, in which things will be set to rights, in which the Gentile pagan powers of the world will be put to flight and the kingdom of God will be manifest in Israel. That prophecy is fulfilled today. What many of us I'm hoping, honestly, many of us don't know. If you do, I'm intimidated because I probably shouldn't be preaching. But in A.D. 6, sometime 25-ish years before this Saturday morning event, Rome came in and destroyed a city called Sephora. It was the capital city of Galilee. Many of us in this room can remember what happened 25 years ago. We don't have to scratch our heads too hard. We remember significant events from 25 years ago. I'm guessing in this part of the country, something that is catastrophic like the Oklahoma City bombing for many people in this room, almost 25 years ago, you remember it. I think if Rome came in and flattened Oklahoma City, you'd remember that. Why did Rome come in and destroy this city? It was because a messianic revolt had begun in that town. The Galilee was a region of Judea that was known for sort of outlying antagonistic political sympathies. And in that town... A messianic revolt had come up, and Rome said, we're going to fix the Galilee once and for all. We're going to destroy your city. So still with the ruins, if you will, of Sephora in the back of their minds, this man stands up, and he says, today. Are you kidding me? Last time I checked, Pilate still has a house in Jerusalem. Last time I checked, my uncle's still dead from 25 years ago, and what happened when Rome came to town. Last I checked, we came back here, but we're not even in charge of ourselves. And you're saying today, 
The messianic age is fulfilled. Israel's today was an awful time. It was not a good time. They're in exile, but they're politically not powerful. And they're thinking the messianic age is going to fix all of this. They're angry because if this is what God fixing things looks like, we don't want this. In some ways, this ties into the verse that I'm thinking through for 2019 from Genesis 28 that I shared with you two weeks ago. If you remember that verse, what does Jacob say? He says, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. Man, if that verse doesn't tie in with this story, why would they think the Messiah had shown up? Here's a question for all of us to think about this morning. Have you ever been frustrated by the contradiction between what God is saying and what you're seeing? Have you ever been exasperated by a preacher like me or a worship leader who had the nerve to get up and say something stupidly good about God when your life is stupidly bad? Isn't it easy to get cynical, friends? Isn't it easy, especially when life is hard and the preacher's positive? Isn't it easy to get cynical? It's easy to dismiss it as hype. Come on. It's easy. How about this one? Pastor, if you had a real job. Oh, don't. My father, when I went to kindergarten... One of the things that they had us do early on was had the class sit in a circle. And this is, this, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. But I, I'm 46, so this is the 70s. And a lot of the homes were dad went to work and mom stayed home. So here was the question. Don't be triggered, okay? Just, it's the time. <laughs> what does your dad do for a job? So the kids go around the circle. Oh, my dad, you know, he, he does construction. He builds stuff. Oh, you know, my dad, he works for IBM because we live in IBM country. Oh, all the way around. They get to Mark. What does your dad do for a job? Oh, he doesn't really do anything. He's a pastor. <laughs> Not only did that make a mark on my teacher who went to one of the other churches in town, it made such a mark she felt the need to tell my father, just so you know, your son doesn't think you do anything. But here's the beauty of that. There's so much of a disconnect that happens from the pulpit to the pew because of that issue. Yeah, you know what? If I sat around reading books and smelling incense and listening to Hosanna music all day, I'd be happy too. Well, maybe not the last part, but you know what I mean, right? <laughs> Sorry. Am I making sense? In other words, it can be frustrating when somebody's talking about the goodness and the promises and the faithfulness of God when you're not seeing any of it. And it's even worse when they insist it's right now. His first word, today. Stop the bus. Slow down, Jesus. Really? That's our when. Two who's. Here's our first two. Jesus starts talking about a widow in Zarephath 
and Naaman from Syria. Culturally, this is Sidon and this is Syria, two particular political and social entities that were especially despised by the Jews. And what does he do? He highlights the two great prophets, Elijah and Elisha. And the two great signs of the two great prophets are both performed for Gentiles. So the first who that has them all up in an outrage is the fact that Jehovah is saving the wrong kind of people. Israel's God was rescuing the wrong people. So we go back to my second question. Am I like these people in Nazareth? Do I get upset when God is really good to people who I don't think deserve the goodness? See, I think this is a knife that cuts both ways this morning. Because for those of us who've come in and we feel like we're disqualified, we feel like because of our past, because of our history, because of things that are beyond our control, there's no way that God could be good to me. Not only can God be good to you, Jesus seems very proud to talk about the fact that God specializes in helping the people who least deserve the help. And so for those of us who have some sort of miraculous grace on our lives, P.S., side note, that is a huge function of grace, awareness. One of the most important functions of grace is the ability and the capacity to be aware of what is true of us. For those of us who walk in that grace, and some days we do and some days we don't, right? Some days you have a grace on your life to be fully honest and woke and eyes wide open and the whole nine, and then some days you just don't want to hear it. And all I'm saying is, for those of us who are feeling underfoot, for those of us who are feeling in the margins and on the edges, for those of us who have been convinced by everything and everyone around us, God doesn't work with your kind. He does. And for the rest of us who think we know how God should work, we stop. There's a second who. The first who is the Gentiles. The second who is Joseph's son? Really? See, this is not the who God is saving. This is the who God is saving through. This is Jesus' version of that idiom, familiarity breeds contempt. This is the idea God couldn't possibly do his saving work through someone like this. And friends... I think this is one of the risks of being devout. My prayer is that all of us in this room will grow in our devotion in 2019. That we will be spiritual men and women, not carnal. That we will seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and let the other things be added. Aren't those good prayers and desires? I think they are. But there's a risk that comes with devotion. 
And I think one of the greatest risks of devotion is that we easily slip into the place of thinking we have God figured out. Because there's a fine line between devotion and expertise. There's a fine line between devotion and expertise. There's a fine line between devoting my whole self, my heart, soul, mind, and strength to loving God. And the next thing you know, I'm praying and I'm in the scriptures. And anytime the church doors are open, I'm there and I'm serving and at, at local outreaches and, and helping the poor. And I'm doing all of these things. And the next thing you know, I'm an expert. And we know God's not using that preacher. We know God wasn't in that worship service. We fall back to our friend Carl Barth. In things of theology, there are no experts. We're all beginners. We are all beginners. Maybe what we need is we need to pray this prayer. God, surprise me. God, amaze me. God, shake things up. I love this text from Hebrews. Towards the end of the, I think I gave them the wrong, I did give you guys the wrong one. We're going to have to do old school church style. If you got your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. I think I gave you guys 11, didn't I? I did. Oops, my bad. We're at Hebrews 12, starting in verse 22. We're going to go through verse 29. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Does that sound like Nazareth? Okay. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that, at that time, his voice shook the earth. And this is what has me... I'm sorry, a little excited this morning. His voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Friends, notice this. What is made will be shaken off, and what is received will remain. Everything it says here, ever, it's the removal of things that have been made. So what does that mean? We have often constructed in our own minds this religious world. Like you remember the Sims? Like that virtual world 
Like it's, we've created this world in which we think we know how to navigate and how to get around. Friends, it's something we've built. It's not the kingdom of God. And so I know this is an eschatological text, and it's talking about the end of time, if you will. What, what I'm asking for, call me precocious, I don't care. I'm saying, God, can you do some shaking now? Can you shake some things up out of my life that ought not be here now? Can you speak to the things that I've created and I've generated that are not of you? Let your voice shake those things off my life. Shake away my illusions of expertise. The illusions that have convinced me I know who you are and what you do. And give me a revelation. I think we gain theological insight, but we also gain some sense of personal possibilities from these texts. First of all, notice that Jesus does not hesitate to speak the truth to the devil he knows. Jesus didn't walk into Nazareth and say, I know you're all going to get triggered, so I'm not going to say nothing. As a matter of fact, he says, surely I know what you're about to say, didn't he? Right? He didn't even give them a chance to say it. He goes, I know you're about to say, physician, heal thyself. He probably even did it that way too with his finger, just like. Notice this. Jesus does not step away from speaking what is true just because it's going to upset the crowd. He knows it's going to upset the crowd, and he says it anyway. Very poor leadership on Jesus' part. That's what he does. But notice this. Notice this. This is the theological insight as to who God is. God will express his power in his vulnerability. He knows they're going to reject what he says, but he says it anyway. Might sound a little bit like the reading from the Old Testament this morning, Jeremiah, I'm going to send you to a people who will not hear speak anyway. Notice that Jesus has resisted the temptation to prove himself, listen, not only to the devil in the wilderness, but the devil in church. He's overcome the devil's temptation to turn stones to bread, and he's overcome Nazareth's temptation to turn their stony hearts into hearts of flesh. He doesn't push back. He doesn't give them a hard time. And I think this is where the personal possibility comes into it for me. I'm going to position myself as the outraged person in Nazareth, you believe this guy? I mean, I know he's young, but he has to know about Sephora. How could he be saying, today this scripture is fulfilled? Do you believe this guy? Talking about Syrians and Gentiles? We're the people of God with promises who need God's help. I can see myself saying, do you believe? I know his father. Wink, wink, do you? I know his father. Notice this. He's not accused of being Mary's son. He's accused of being Joseph's son. We live in a culture of outrage. 
If you're brave enough to have a social media app on your phone, you may know what I'm talking about. There are days when I know I can't look at it. We're cultivating a culture of outrage. It's an outrage culture. And I think the question, this scenario, this, if we can close our eyes and just imagine the sort of intensity in this moment in the synagogue, this is Twitter, just in person. This is Thanksgiving dinner when millennials go home. I'm appealing to the cliches here, but I think you know what I mean. We live in a day where we don't just disagree. We devalue the other. We question the existential legitimacy of the other. And notice this. Jesus doesn't need the last word. And so this morning, I want to encourage you. If you're outraged by something that God is up to, if a season comes up, a moment comes up where you're tempted to get pretty angry and ornery and maybe a little bit on the wrathful side of the equation because things aren't going the way you think they should, rather than question Joseph's son, what happened if we started walking out with him? You'll notice that in Nazareth, they try to do not just what the devil was trying to do in the wilderness, but ultimately what Rome would do on Calvary's hill. Jesus, knowing it was not his time, I love the way that Luke ends this. It tells us that he quite simply passed through their midst and went away. Oh, for grace to trust him more. Because in a culture of outrage, I wonder if maybe we only have two choices. Is to keep screaming in the synagogue or walk his way out. Let's pray. Father, today, we've talked about grace and the beauty of the ways in which grace awakens us. Grace calls us to see ourselves, to see you rightly. God, there are times where texts are just easy to preach, and then there are times where they leave us a little bit challenged, a little bit unresolved. And so I'm asking today that the sermon, if it feels unresolved, that you would use that ellipsis, you would, you would use that openness here right now to continue by your spirit to work with us very acutely this week. Are we outraged in Nazareth? Or are we walking on your way with you? 
I pray we'd follow you faithfully. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.